Just a, before we get started on the, the second half of this, of this lecture, I just wanted to say I've gotten a couple questions about where do you find the Bible zines? Where do you get these? Um, they used to be widely available uh, in the old Cokesbury bookstores, and there was a couple here in Atlanta, and unfortunately they've, they've now closed. Uh, they used to have whole racks of these things. Uh, I got mine off of Amazon, or at least the latest ones I got off of Amazon. You can buy them there for very cheap because a lot of them are used. Uh, Thomas Nelson isn't publishing these as much as they used to. They kind of hit their peak 2008, 2009, 2010. You still, I think, can find new ones. So if you're interested, in fact, I know you can, because you can go on Thomas Nelson's website and buy new ones. Uh, and I, we wondered, too, if there were, uh, my hunch is that you could find these uh, at, at places like Walmart and other things, especially here in the South, that are trying to pitch towards a mass, uh, kind of a mass audience, but a, but a particularly Christian one. Um, so they're out there if you, if you look. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's go ahead and get started here. Session four, supplementing scripture, the end of the word as we know it, <laughs> with full intentions of referencing the 1987 song by R.E.M. I'll come back to it at the end of the lecture. In this session, we'll look at three ways in which the Bible zines attempt to supplement scripture and the way they affect, where those supplements affect our understanding of the Bible and its interpretation. Now, the most obvious way in which these Bible zines attempt to supplement scripture is simply through external appearance. That is, it's through the creative packaging of the Bible itself. What most immediately strikes us when you look at a Bible zine is its glossy, full-color pages, photos, illustrations, call-out boxes, diagrams, fresh fonts, and splashy cover ads. If you compare a Bible zine to this regular Bible, which one do you want to open? <laughs> or at least if you were a pre-teen pre boy, which explore targets, which one would you rather open? Well, obviously, the one on the left. On the cover, we find pictures of skateboards and guitars and what I think is a lizard or an iguana. I wasn't quite sure in the bottom right. And you find their catchy hooks as well. Why is God so awesome? Want to get connected with those around you? Tons of cool facts to share with your friends because that's exactly what a 12-year-old needs is cool facts to share with his friends. How can I talk with God about life? It makes you want to open it up and flip through it not unlike an actual magazine. It's designed quite well in that way. This is the point, in fact. It's not only to get the Bible into the hands of many people, but it's also to get them to open it and read it. A lot of people own Bibles and don't read them. This is actually, there's, there's a second paradox. One is that Bible uh, publishing is booming at a time when we can get Bibles for free. The other paradox is that Christians have never owned more Bibles and have never read it less. The Bible is the least read of the most sold books on the New York Times bestseller list. That's another paradox, right? Uh, that I think is behind the Bible zine phenomenon. We do, as I said earlier, after all, judge a book by its cover. And this is no small accomplishment, that is, to get people to actually open the Bible zine or any Bible and read it. Uh, one of the greatest hurdles to biblical literacy is simply not opening the book. Biblical literacy, as I said, uh, biblical literacy levels have never been lower, in part because the best-selling book of all times is not all that often read. So, I think the logic goes, if the medium 
helps you open the word, then a Bible zine has the potential to raise biblical literacy levels. That's the Bible zine at its best. It just invites you to open the text and read, and we all need a little bit of that. And on this score, the Bible zine is not the only form of scripture concerned with creative packaging. There are actually a whole line of Bibles that are interested in marketing a particular cover that gets you to buy it and then open it. Here's just a couple examples. Uh, This is the Waterproof Bible. It is extremely durable, synthetic pages. It's stain-resistant. It has an ultra-clear text, and it's ideal for backpacking or a gear bag. Now, I suspect that this sort of Bible is not really meant for a soldier in war. At most, it's meant for a quiet time by the pool or at the beach in the summer. But there's a certain attraction with its camouflage and water-resistant pages. This feels like you need this Bible, even if you have nine others at home. Or check out Tyndall's house's metal Bible with a license plate on the front. Uh, Of course, there's a vanity plate there that spells forgiven, and the state is, of course, the state of grace. Um, There's nothing different about the inside of this Bible than in any other Bible. It's the same Bible that you get in our pews, but what it looks like on the outside is really, really, really different. It's almost as if what it looks like matters more than what it contains in this particular case. Now, my personal favorite, although there would be many, many, many others to list, and I'm trying to edit myself down to just a few examples here in this category, but my personal favorite is what is known as the duct tape Bible (laughs) from none other than Thomas Nelson. If you can look closely on the screen, there's literally a duct tape-like feel and appearance on the cover. This is uh, just a little brown piece of paper there uh, that covers it. It, uh, on the inside, uh, uh, it is marketed as being, um, oh, excuse me, it's promoted as follows, quote, the complete everyday Bible wrapped in durable duct tape. Take this Bible anywhere you want to go, camping, hiking, mission trips, school, even church youth group. Available in traditional silver duct tape as well as camouflage, the message of this Bible is even more durable than the package. It's life-changing message that will last forever. That's how the duct tape Bible is marketed. Now my question is, and this is just worth a small diversion, why would you create such a thing? Why would you market a duct tape Bible? Well, it's actually quite interesting. There is a trend, and particularly in more conservative and evangelical American Christian communities, of conspicuously displaying worn out Bibles. People purposely bring with them to church and carry around Bibles that look beat up, worn out, used, and read. And many of these Bibles are wrapped in duct tape in order to keep them together. Uh, One person, I I want to quote a a scholar who, who did a little piece on this, they said, I think the best Bibles have, or this, excuse me, this is not a scholar, this is an actual person who owns one of these worn out Bibles. I think the best Bibles have some sort of tape on the outside and front or rear pages that are barely attached to the binding. Bibles get this way because people actually read them, carry them, write in them, pray and weep over them, spill coffee on them, clutch them, leave them on the car dashboard in error on hot summer days, and love the God whose words they hold. A worn-out Bible, in other words, is a symbol of a well-used Bible. Okay? 
what the Bible looks like says something about its user's devotion to it. But the duct tape Bible here takes a shortcut, doesn't it? You don't have to actually use your Bible so much that it needs to be held together by duct tape. You can buy a brand new one that has the duct tape already on it. So you can have the appearance of reading your Bible a whole lot without ever having to open its cover. That, I think, is what's up with the duct tape Bible. It actually reminded me, just as a little aside, it kind of, I, see, I hear this analogy with the fashion jeans industry. Bible publishers know that consumers prefer products that look like old favorites right off the shelf. And that's why jeans with holes in them often cost way more than jeans without the holes. My dad always just could never wrap his mind around that fact. But that's again, is another story for another time. So how do, all joking aside in a way, how do we evaluate this? What do we do with it? Are these image-conscious Bibles a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I want to give these publishers the benefit of the doubt in a certain way. And generally, I don't want to quibble over the appearance of your Bible. I'm happy if you have a Bible and you read it. So I'm not going to parse, finally, what your Bible looks like. And I have a lot of room for Bibles that look different than my own. The biblical content, after all, in the duct tape Bible or the metal Bible or the camouflage Bible is the same. And if a duct tape cover gets someone to actually dig into its pages, then it's all to the good in my book. My only caution, and I really want to frame it in terms of a tentative question, is this. Does changing the medium affect how we handle the message? Does changing the medium affect how we handle the message? Perhaps, and I, I really, I mean perhaps, I'm not sure, in the history of Christianity, the Bible has been handled, literally the, the artifact of the Bible, has been handled with great care as a sacred object in its own right. It is processed, it is displayed prominently on altars, not unlike the one in this church. It is sometimes even enclosed in ivory or jewel-decorated cases. Scripture in the history of the church has been handled, not just as any other book, a book just to be read, but it's been handled as a sacred object, something holy, something different, something set apart. And it's not a certain type of uh, magical mysticism that leads to that. I think the logic is if we handle this, in a special way, will treat the content with a special way. So how you handle the Bible is a precursor to how you handle its message or its content. Reverence for the object as is intended to, to prompt reverence for the message. So if that's the case, is the converse true? If we handle the Bible, or at least its outward appearance, in, in a no special way, if the Bible looks like any other book, if it has duct tape on it, or metal, or pictures of skateboards and iguanas, does that affect how we, the, the level of reverence we have for its content? The reality is it probably depends on a case-by-case -case basis, and I'm not ready to do away with the Bible zine because of this, but I just would at least raise it as a question. If the medium is the message, then what happens if we change the medium? Now, the second way in which these Bible zines tend to be supplemented is that, literally, there's added on content. When you open its pages, you find there much, much, much more than just the Bible itself. We've already seen this uh, earlier, but I want to show you a couple full display pages. Uh, this first one is from um, 
uh, from Align, which is that young professional men's uh, Bible. As you can tell here, uh, the Bible stuff is here and here, but there's a box here, here, and here that is non-Bible stuff. So I would estimate on this uh, spread, at least half of the material is not Bible. It's supplemented with additional content. Uh, the same is true of this spread from Becoming. Uh, the biblical content is here and here, but all of this and all of this is added on content. So in this page, I would say about two-thirds of it is added on content, and only one-third Bible. Uh, this full-page spread from Refuel, which is a teenage boy's Bible, even a smaller portion of it is actual scripture. Here's the biblical text from Judges um, 9, I believe. Here's some extra content, and here's a whole page that's non-biblical content. This one is about um, issues in media. Uh, in, in all of these cases, um, well, actually, let me take another example. In the Refuel magazine, the Refuel Bible zine, targeted at teenage boys, which you see here, I looked through the whole thing, and I counted no fewer than eight different types of added-on content. Not eight examples, but eight different types that reappear again and again and again. Uh, they are, for instance, uh, little boxes that where experts give answers to questions about the Bible. There's the count on it boxes that highlight promises of God. There's the radical faith boxes that challenges you to trust God with abandon. There's ways to walk, the walk boxes, which gives practical ideas for practicing faith. There's men of the sword boxes, which tells the stories of biblical guys who've braved battles like you do. There's fight the fight boxes that feature lessons you can learn from the lives of the men in the Bible. There's the class act boxes, which shows you how to become a knight in shining armor. I'm quoting here. And then there's the guard your heart boxes, which equips you with the weapons for fighting temptation. These fill the pages of the refuel Bible zine. Now, in fairness, added on content is not, again, unique to Bible zines. This is no less true, the added on content, of your standard study Bible. For instance, Tyndale's Life Application Study Bible, uh, nearly one-third of all the content is supplementary. This is not a Bible zine. This looks like a Bible. It's almost more deceptive that way. When the Bible zine, you almost expect there to be add on content. But when you open a, a, a white or black or red or blue Life Application Bible, you expect the Bible, and you get one-third content added. Not to be outdone, Zondervan's NIV study Bible, which some of you might have, half of the content is supplement. Half of the content is non-biblical. Or consider the numerous uh, niche Bibles out there, like the Everyman's Bible. It boasts of 300 text boxes, a host of one-page perspective essays on a range of manly topics, uh, there's hard-hitting instructions from the Bible on work, sex, competition, time management, and much more. It promises real answers real fast. No more second-guessing what God really means. But because those real answers real fast aren't always evident in the Bible itself, it has to tell you what they are through this content added. Many, uh, in the Every Man's Bible, many of the uh, different books of Scripture have a feature title called What's the Point? And it gives a one-sentence summary of what the whole book is about. Presumably, then, you don't have to read it. You can just read the one-sentence summary. <laughs> well, I found some of these curious, uh, particularly from my Old Testament perspective. For Leviticus, here's the summary. So you, never have to, you never have to read Leviticus. Here's the summary of Leviticus. God pays attention to detail. That's what Leviticus is about. Song of Songs, 
The love of a good woman is worth cultivating. <laughs> I don't disagree. I'm not sure that that's what Song of Songs is about. But, uh, and then the Gospel of Luke, Jesus cares about the individual, which is striking to me because that Gospel is the most profoundly communal and politically oriented of all the Gospels, nevertheless. And then Book of Revelation, in the end, the great one wins. In fact, that one I agree with. Uh, <laughs> Because I know nothing else about the book of Revelation other than that one sentence. So I'm going to stick with their summary uh, on that particular point. Now, again, what do we do with this? I want to be generous here. I don't have a critique in and of itself of content being added to the Bible. I think that's okay. I think the Bible is hard to read. I myself appreciate sometimes the notes I find at the bottom of my study Bible. I recommend to congregants and to students in my seminary classes to have a good study Bible on hand that offers some nice introductory essays, some notes about verses. It can be super, super helpful. I love the charts and the timelines. I always get the kings and the prophets mixed up. So this stuff is very, very helpful. I have no critique for the basic idea that one might add some content to the Bible to help make it more user-friendly or to help study. All of that is fine and good in my book. Um, but here's the problem in my view. Yeah, there's, a, there's always a but. Um, the added content, particularly in these Bibles, in the Bible zines, and this is less true of study Bibles, but in the Bible zine, the added content is more integrated into the biblical text itself. So much so that I think you can lose track if you were just flipping through about what's Bible and what's supplement, what's scripture and what's added. I think a great example is actually the Becoming magazine, oops, here, where there aren't really even strong colored boxes, right? It almost blends in. So I love content added to scripture. Hear me say that but I prefer it to be distinguished from the text. And here's where study Bibles, I think, have an advantage. And here's the particular problem to it. Added content, I think, in this variety, literally becomes canonized as part of Scripture. We lose the differentiation between Bible and supplement. We're still, I think, we tend to read the added-on content instead of Scripture, right? You look at this page and you're a 14-year-old boy, what are you going to read? Well, you're not going to read this stuff. So here's the paradox, right? This is all about accessibility. It's all about raising biblical literature. It's all about exposing people to the Bible. And yet if you buy the Bible zine, you actually can end up not reading the Bible. And so you're right back where you were with your plain, boring, white leather Bible that we had in my house. Yeah, that's a good, so the question is, has there been a study that kind of can measure what people actually read in the Bible zine? Are they reading the biblical text or are they reading the boxes? There hasn't been an official study, but there's two anecdotal points of evidence. One, I've scrolled through Thomas Nelson's website and read reader reviews of Bible zines, and what everyone talks about in those reviews is not how great Luke 2 is, but they talk about the added content. So that suggests to me that maybe that they're still reading the Bible, but what's catching their attention is the, are the boxes, the add-on. The other anecdotal evidence is that there are recent studies by the Pew Organization and others on biblical literacy in America, 
and it's, the results are bleak in terms of what we know about the Bible. Now, I don't know if those people are reading Bible zines. There's no differentiation there, so it's, it's more suggestive than it is specific. But my thought is that, again, it would be, this would be great to, br uh, to bring to a youth group and say, okay, you've got 30 seconds, read something, and then ask them what they read. And I just, this is not as fun. Look, the font is all normal, and uh, it, it's, it, it's black on white. Here you've got color and cool fonts, and it's just, your eye does not go to this part of the page, I think. And that's uh, quite intentional. So in the end then, uh, while, these, while the added content promises to make the Bible more accessible, it might contribute to the biblical text themselves being less read. Now, yes? And that's exactly right. And this is actually the third point. And no, that's great. It's a great segue. This is the third point, that one specific category of added-on content are little boxes that interpret for you. They give you a quick takeaway message, often from a very complicated biblical text. And I want to give you one example of this. Uh, these, are, these little boxes are called various things. In Becoming, it's called What's the Point? In Align, it's called The Bottom Line. In Blossom, it's called Dig Deeper. In Explore, it's called Solid Rock. But they all are attempting to do the same thing. These, these interpretations of the text, they're not of the historical and theological variety. Uh, rather, each um, tries to lift up the central takeaway message from a particular text. And here again, on face value, I have no objection to that, necessarily. Um, it recognizes, in a sense, that the Bible can be difficult to read and promises to us, uh, it promises us to help us better understand and apply scriptures in our lives. I can get on board with that. But let me give you an example, a taste of some of the interpretation. Now, to do this, I want to go to uh, a text um, uh, in, from Judges 11. It might not be the most familiar text in the world, but it's a, partic it's a particularly troubling story and that's going to emphasize the point of the nature of their interpretation. So Judges 11, it's this period of turmoil and tension. The Israelites are seeking to continue to gain control of the land of Canaan, but are failing to do so in part because of their own moral, ethical, and religious uh, uh, failures. Uh, in this particular episode in Judges 11, um, there's a guy named Jephthah who finds himself commissioned to lead a battle against the uh, uh, Ammonites. And before he goes into battle, he makes a vow to God. Now, now, God had already promised him that he would win the battle, okay? But he goes a second step and says, God, if I win this battle, I will sacrifice to you whatever comes out of my house when I come home victorious. So whatever that is that comes out of my house, I will sacrifice it to you if you give me this win in the battle. Well, sure enough, Jephthah goes into battle. He fights the Ammonites, and he wins decisively. And he comes home in celebration from his victory. And this is what happens. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mitzvah, and there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and with dancing. So catch what's happening. She was his only child. He had no son or daughter except her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. Note the blaming here. You have brought me very low. You have become the cause of a great trouble for me. Well, what's going to happen to her? Right? For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. There's no biblical 
law that says you can't take back a vow, by the way. She said to him, My father, if you have opened your mouth to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has given you vengeance against your enemies, the Ammonites. And, he said to her, uh, and she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Grant me two months so that I may go and wander on the mountains and bewail my virginity, my companions and I. Go, he said, and sent her away for two months. So she departed, she and her companions, and bewailed her virginity on the mountains. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to the vow he made. Let me translate that for you. In all likelihood, he killed her. Okay? Here's what the interpretation box tells you about it. The first paragraph that just sums up the story. And then it says this. Let's ignore the question of whether this vow was appropriate or not. Or even whether Jephthah actually sacrificed his daughter or simply confined her to a nun-like existence. So let's ignore that. Let's ignore what's really hard about this text, okay? Instead, take a look at the daughter's amazing response. Um, her father had made a promise to God at the expense of her life. His intent to honor the Lord, well, that's not true at all in the story, had backfired with his somewhat reckless words. Somewhat reckless words? Yet none of this mattered to the daughter. I beg to differ. I think all of it mattered gravely and dearly to the daughter. The bottom line in her mind was simple. I doubt it. God was faithful. God? God wasn't in this story, if you recall. Therefore, we must be faithful. God had kept his word. We will do the same. She was completely willing to give up her life for the glory of God. The story does not talk at all about the daughter giving her life up for the glory of God. Now, this is extreme faith. This is a terrifying text. And it is in our sacred scripture. And we must wrestle with it. And I don't have an easy answer for what to do with it. But I know it's not this. I know that there is nothing in here that's a model of our faith. I know that this was not easy for the daughter. This is a text of terror. This is a text that is hard to deal with. And I'm troubled deeply, not only by the interpretation, but again, because of what we said earlier, people are going to read the interpretation and not read the story. And if you read this, the story you imagine in your head is not the story that's in the scripture. So this whitewashes scripture in a way. So that when you ever in, do encounter the story of Jephthah's daughter, what's going to be there is going to be very shocking to you. And it might cause you to give up on the Bible because of it. Now, to be fair, some interpretations in these Bible zines are more palatable than this one. I picked out a particularly egregious one, in my, in, in, I must say. The problem, I think, is that in building interpretations into the Bible itself, you effectively keep people from an authentic an honest engagement with the text, right? You actually say, you don't need to interpret the Bible, we'll do it for you. And I think part of the challenge that all of us Christians face is that we need to build the skills, the perspectives, the ideas that actually can equip us to wrestle with these texts ourselves. Maybe we don't get an easy answer out of this story. In fact, I suspect that if we did get an easy answer out of this story, uh, we wouldn't be on the right track. But I do hope that people grapple with the text itself. This is going back to that sola scriptura theology that I want people in the pews, in the churches, to be interpreters of scripture themselves. And I think, in a way, these sorts of built-in interpretations 
inhibit that from happening, let alone the fact that this interpretation is not a great one. Even the very presence of it, I think, can be problematic. So as you can tell, this for me is, is the hardest or the thing I, I want to push back on the most, even though I have a generally charitable read of the Bible's need. Let me get you out of here on this. I want to give one uh, or two quick words of conclusion about what to do with this. For all of these reasons that I've said, I have a deep reservations about the Bible zine, at least in some respects. Though the motives, I think, are rooted in a desire to make Scripture accessible and attractive, which I'm on board with, it seems at times to succumb to a type of biblical consumerism or a certain overly market-conscious nature. Um, uh, if this is what is becoming of the Bible, you might think, we might be tempted to bemoan the situation and worry about the future of the church, let alone the future of the Bible. To adjust the popular title of the R.E.M. song that I quoted earlier from the late 1980s, it's the end of the word, not world, as we know it. But I don't want to end here. And in fact, I want to end on a more positive and affirming note about the Bible zine and really the future of Bible publishing. After all, the R.E.M. song does not end with the, with the words, it's the end of the world as we know it. It continues and says, oops, and I feel fine. And to be honest with you, I feel fine about the Bible zine when it comes down to it. And here are two reasons why. The first reason I feel fine about the Bible zine is this. Since the time of the Jesus and the disciples, the church has always been tasked to be open to adaptation for the sake of the gospel. This goes back to the very pages of our New Testament. Writing to the church at Corinth, the Apostle Paul says, I have become all things to all people, that I might by all means save some. Paul takes seriously the fact that God calls each of us to engage the gospel and culture to think creatively, creatively about how the message of good news can reach out into the secular world. This is a calling we have as Christians. The reformers talked about the church reformed and always or ever reforming. Neither Paul nor the reformers could have imagined a Bible zine. And surely they would have puzzled over the whole thing. Yet, I think they would have applauded the theology behind it. They would have applauded the impulse to engage gospel and culture and to think always creatively about how we can translate the message of Christianity into a form and medium that makes sense to people outside of the church. And I have to say, I applaud, the Bible, the Bible zine is not my cup of tea, but I appreciate what it's trying to do in that respect. The second reason I feel fine about the Bible zine, even though it is the end of the word as we, we know it, is that I want to go back to the, the opening exercise from today. When you imagined what the Bible was supposed to look like, what we imagined in our mind, that ideal form of the Bible, would have been utterly unthinkable to Jesus, the disciples, and members of the church for 1,500 years. We imagine a print Bible with, uh, that, that's manufactured and produced, leather cover, all these different things. That did not exist for most of Christianity. Of course, not before the Gutenberg Press was there a, a, a printed Bible in the same way. But even before that, um, the Bible was known, by and large, in scrolls, not books. When it was printed, these were enormous books. These were not pew Bibles that were printed. So, in a way, the Bible zine seems really, really, really strange to us. But that white leather 
traditional, no-frills Bible that sat on my oak shelf in my living room from where I grew up would have seemed equally strange and weird and bizarre to the disciples. So, there's no set way of what the Bible is supposed to look like. There's no canonical form for Scripture. The Bible is more of a river than a rock. It's always flowing, always changing, always evolving. Not its content, but its form. Scripture was never meant to be contained between the pages of two white leather covers or even between the pages of, of floppy, glossy color pages in the Bible zine. Perhaps the Bible zine is not our cup of tea, but I think change is here to stay with the form of the Bible. And really, it was always there from the beginning. Maybe we are at the end of the word as we know it, but the Bible has always been there before, and I feel fine. Thank you. <laughs>